We're going to be in the book of Matthew now, chapter 26. We're going to continue where we left off the other night, starting in verse number 17. So if you have your Bibles handy, you can open to that. And I'm putting the outline back up just for a moment to remind you of uh, what we're looking at in the chapter. And let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Father, thank you this evening that we have this chance to gather around the Word of God and spend spend some time with you, spend some time with your Word, and learn more about this incredibly unique and special time that in your life uh, when you were on your way to the cross, Lord. Let these truths that we learn and read tonight, let them sink in deep with us. Let us walk away better than how we came, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Chapter 26, <clears throat> we have moved on to speaking about the betrayal of of the Lord Jesus. Now I introduce that to you in verse number two, you read there where Jesus makes the announcement. Um, forgive me, let me use my screen here. Um, verse number two, you know that after two days is the feast of the Passover and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Everything in the chapter is actually related to his betrayal in one way or another. Uh, what we're going to be looking at to begin with in, in verse 17 is the Last Supper. But remember what led up to this, right? Judas, he has sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. He's looking for a chance to betray him. And right at the end of the Last Supper, Judas is, is sent away by the Lord and, and he goes and gets the soldiers and they come and arrest him. So it's all tied into the betrayal. Let me also zoom you out just a little bit. Remember that back in chapter 24, uh, Jesus was asked a question about the end of the world. What's the sign of thy coming? And then there were two main points that he emphasized for the disciples. Don't be deceived and stay ready. Then in chapter 5, we saw this emphasis on staying ready. You have to hang on to your faith. You have to endure to the end. Uh, you have to do something with what God's given you. You have to love others right? You have to live out your faith. All of those very basic fundamental principles are emphasized in chapter 25. And then in chapter 26, remember this is coming right on the tail end of Jesus giving that response to this big question about what are the signs of thy coming? And now he says, guys, I'm going to be betrayed. And we get all this information in chapter 26. So right on the tail end of saying, be ready, don't give up the faith. Hang on to the end. Now we're going to read about somebody turning on him. And of course, that's Judas. Then we got Peter who gets offended and denies the Lord. So I, if you zoom out and look at the bigger picture of what's going on here, you can see it's brilliantly written the way Matthew has put all this together. And, the, and you'd have to say that it's not so much Matthew as much as the Lord and how he put all this, uh, how his teaching lined up with what was about to happen. All right, uh, chapter 26, let's get verse number 17 to begin with tonight. All right, in verse number 17, he says, Now the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? Uh, this was what is often referred to as the Paschal Supper. Paschal Supper, the yearly event for the Jews. Now, when the Passover was originally instituted, you can read about this back in Leviticus chapter 23, you had the Passover happening on the 14th day of the first month. 
And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread happened for the next seven days after that. So it was actually eight, nine days, I guess, if you counted it all up. Um, the way that the Jews were working now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the whole thing was called the Passover. So I don't, I hate to use the word evolved, but that feast had some, at least the, I want to say the nomenclature, that's a big word to just say the name of it, had slowly evolved to where they, they really didn't recognize a distinction between the Passover itself and then the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. They lumped it all together. But they, the disciples of Jesus knew that as a good Jew, he was prepared to keep the feast like all the other Jews were going to do. Where do you want to eat this special, this special Passover supper? Verse 18, he said, Go into the city to such a man and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand, and I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. All right, so he's going to observe this Jewish feast. Now, obviously, Christ knows that he is the Passover lamb. But that does not negate the fact that uh, the Jews still had this ordinance from the Old Testament to keep, and there was nothing wrong with it. So Jesus is going forward with this. In verse 18, you can see that obviously Jesus had already prearranged this, this last meal uh, with his disciples. He had already set this up so that when he got to town, his disciples could be put in touch with this certain person and everything would be, would be ready. Verse 19 says, I'm sorry, I'm still getting used to this scrolling up and down thing. Verse 19, and the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them and they made ready the Passover. Now, when you read this in the other gospels, you see that they, they actually killed the Passover. So they are just like you find in Exodus 12. They had to uh, take a lamb or they could take a goat, right? If you, if you read it in Exodus 12, you can choose either one. The story works much better with a lamb in this case, doesn't it? But they would prepare it properly. They would uh, slay it properly, burn it properly, cook it properly. Everything done according to Old Testament scripture, uh, scriptural standards. Verse 20, now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Now here I... I want to introduce this to you, but we can't spend a lot of time on it. I really wish we could. We could honestly make one full hour just of, of comparing what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John offer to this story because each gospel writer tends to give you just one little complimentary piece of information. But I'm going to especially emphasize the complimentary information in John's gospel. Right, Matthew, Mark, and Luke line up pretty well. We call them synoptics because they do line up so well. But John's gospel is very unique. So what you read in John, we get more of the details about this supper, the, the actual lamb that they ate. And then Jesus gets up from the meal. He girds himself with a towel and he washes the disciples' feet. We don't have that story in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. That's unique to the gospel of John. But just have that in your mind that there, there, it, there are more parts to this story. Um, when you lay all the facts out, all the details from the different gospels and see how, they, how the pieces of the puzzle fit perfectly together, it's, it's honestly brilliant how one, one gospel gives you one angle of the story. And then John, in this case, gives you a different angle. But putting all the facts together 
really presents a, a great picture. And I mentioned this last week. Uh, some skeptics of the Bible, they find this as a problem, right? They raise this as an issue to say the Bible isn't consistent. You have slightly different details in Matthew and then John says it so differently. That, I think, is a, is a good thing. It shows that the men writing the Bible, it was not um, a conspiracy. It was, there was no collusion. They were not coming together saying, let's trick all the people. Let's come up with this uh, you know, interesting story. And Because if they were faking it, if they were lying, they'd have to get their facts straight and try to spell it out so that it all sounded the same. The fact that there are some differences tends to make it, it well, not just sound genuine, but that's what you would expect with something that is a story that's genuinely being told. Uh, verse number 21, as they did eat, he said, verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. This is something he said after washing their feet. Verse 22, and they were exceeding sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? Now, wouldn't you say that? Can you imagine the master sitting there at the head of the table and saying, one of you, you're going to betray me? Whew, that's a big statement, especially on the heels of what he's just said in chapter 24 and 25, the punishment that goes with that. Now one of us is in danger. Lord, is it I? Is it I? I think it's in Mark's gospel. They went one by one saying this. And then I think in Luke, it says that they begin to talk amongst themselves. So they would ask the Lord and then they would also ask each other, you think it's me? Do you think I'm the one that's going to mess up? And they were having this conversation. Verse number 23, he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. Now that seems like a very bland, almost non-answer, right? He's, one of you shall betray me. Well, there's only 12 of them sitting there. And then when they say, is it I, is it I? Well, whoever's dipping his hand with me in the dish. If you read this again, I think it's in Mark's gospel. He just, it says, one of you 12. So I think in the back of the minds of the disciples, they're looking around the room. Is it me? Is it you? Is it, who is it? They might have had the idea that, well, maybe Jesus is referring to one of, one of the followers that are not in this room. Because Jesus did have other disciples, right, beyond this this special group of 12 apostles. Maybe he's referring to them. And Jesus narrows it down, makes sure that they know it's somebody in this room that's partaking of this meal. And then he says this incredible statement in verse 24. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Anybody that dies in an unsaved condition, right, in an unregenerate state, on their way to everlasting punishment, this is true of them. But for this particular person who is betraying the Lord, the statement could not be more true. This man is going to suffer. We read, right, we learned back in chapter 23 about a greater damnation. Imagine how great the damnation is for the person who sells out Jesus Christ. Now, Judas, of course, hears this. Now, also, this, this is where it's so tempting. Sorry, I'm going to fix my chair. It's a little more comfortable that way. It's, it's, a, it's very tempting. Why I mentioned earlier, we could take a full hour to just go back and forth with Matthew and John here because in John, you get the other part of the conversation. Peter 
leans over to John. John is leaning on Jesus' breast here, on his, on his chest. And now remember, when the Jews ate, they didn't sit in a chair like I am. They, don't, they didn't have dining room tables and chairs like we do. They reclined. They, they would, they would kind of like almost lay down partially on the floor when they would eat. So John is leaning on Jesus' breast, and, and Peter says, hey, ask the Lord who, who it is. And that's when John turns to Jesus and says, who is it? Jesus tells John, I'm going to dip a, a sop, a piece of bread, and whoever I give the sop to, that's, that's who the person is. And then we have this part of the story as well that you don't find in John, but in Matthew, Jesus makes this, I want to say public, right? He's not privately telling John this now, but to everybody, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed as is written. It's going to happen, but woe to that man. And then Judas steps in, in verse 25, then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? And he said unto him, Thou hast said, which is another way of saying, you, you, you got it right. Thou said, you nailed it. You're the one. And it's at that moment, he takes the sop and hands it to him. So John has some inside information, right? He's saying, John, you'll see who it is. If I'm understanding this correctly, Judas, which betrayed him, he, he asked this question not publicly. It wasn't something that all the disciples heard. I don't think they all heard Jesus respond to him and say, thou hast said. Now, just to back that up, forgive me. I said we're not going to bounce back and forth, and we're not. But I am going to show you a verse here in John to uh, hopefully make some sense of this. All right, so there you can see the context. He then lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? That's the apostle John. Jesus answered, He it is to whom I gave, I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. When he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest do quickly. Now he's referring to going out and getting the soldiers and bringing them back. Verse 28, Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. So that thing, that he just said, that thou doest do quickly, he said out loud. But look at what they said next in verse 29. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So they, they didn't realize that Jesus had already indicated to Judas and answered in the affirmative, is it I? Yes. They must not have heard that part. So that's why when you line these two stories up next to each other, it, it gives you the perfect picture of what's taking place. Now, if all you have was Matthew's gospel, you'd still understand the story quite well. But I don't think God ever intended us for to have just one version of the story or one angle of the story. Um, this is something we talk about more in, in biblical survey class when, when we do go through each book of the New Testament and we look at the New Testament as a whole. We talk more about the four gospels and and what's so unique about having them as a group. All right, so back in Matthew 26, verse 26. Now we're getting into the Lord's Supper. Now this, there's two names here, right? You can see my Bible program calls this the institution of the Lord's Supper, and that's a very good uh, heading for this passage. This is also what we refer to as the Last Supper, because it's the last meal that he's having with the disciples. But it is the first time that the Lord's Supper is performed. So verse 26, as they were, and as they were eating, 
Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, please bear in mind that Jesus sat down with the disciples and had supper. He ate lamb. They had bread. There was some, there was new wine at the least at the table, right? It was a proper Passover meal. Like I said earlier, this Paschal supper, that's in John 13 verses 2 down to 17. And then he washed their feet afterwards. He has this part of the story, the, the last, what we call the last supper or the Lord's supper. So there's two parts to this, right? When Jesus institutes this ordinance, this is at the tail end of that supper. So he's already finished the, the supper proper, if you want to refer to it like that. And now he's going to give them this ordinance. Take, eat, this is my body. Verse 27, and he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. So we'll say more about that in a moment. Let me give you guys, this will be your attendance code for the evening. Uh, I'm going to pull it up for you now on the screen. This is Luke chapter 22 and verse 19. This is the same story uh, in Luke's gospel. Got my coaster with it. Same story, but I want you to see that Luke gives us one extra piece of information on this. Verse 19, And he took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now, it's that last phrase that is unique to Luke. When Paul teaches the Corinthian church about the Lord's Supper, this is in 1 Corinthians 11, he quotes from Luke's gospel. We know that he did because he included that extra phrase. Now, that last part of the verse, this do in remembrance of me, this is how we know that the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples was meant to be repeated over and over again down through the centuries of amongst Christians. This is when it became an ordinance. All right. So let me come back to Matthew's gospel and I'm going to put up now. You have you see the attendance code there Luke 22 verse 19. I'm going to take that down and give you the definition here of ordinance. When you, this, this definition is coming from the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, which to my knowledge is the oldest English dictionary that we have access to. The word ordinance means a rule established by, a, uh, by authority or a permanent rule of action. So putting those two thoughts together, this is a permanent rule of action that has been established by an authority. In this case, the authority is Jesus Christ, and the permanent rule of action is the Lord's Supper. So he's told us to do this as often as you do it, do in remembrance of me. Now, that also answers another issue that gets raised here. When Jesus was, was doing this, when he was instituting this ordinance, was he teaching the disciples that the bread that was in his hand had literally been transformed into his body. This is a Roman Catholic teaching called transubstantiation. So trans, you're going from one place to another, like a transfer, transubstantiation. So it's a transfer of substance. You're going from one substance to another. 
So from bread to body. So in, in that doctrine, they teach that when the priest holds up that piece of bread and says, this is the body of Christ, it is literally his body. You're eating his flesh. But according to what Luke told us, Jesus commanded this to be done as a remembrance. It was a memorial. So that, that tells us that it was meant as a picture, right? It was meant as an illustration of what was about to happen uh, there at the cross and with the suffering and the shedding of his blood. All right, so verse number 27, drink ye all of it. Verse 28, for this is my blood of the New Testament. That's something you might want to mark. That's the first time that you read the phrase New Testament. It's the first time in the Bible. Um, you do read in Jeremiah chapter 31 where God said that he would issue a new covenant, and that's pretty much the same. It is the same thing. Uh, but this is the first time Jesus has mentioned it. So it's the first time in the book of Matthew or in any, any book that we call a New Testament book, this is the first time it's mentioned. Let that work into your thinking. Right? When we think of, of the life and the ministry and the teaching of Jesus, it's so easy to take all of our present day knowledge and read it back into this. This is the first time the disciples heard the phrase New Testament. And now he's saying, this is the New Testament in my blood. That tells me something. Just like the Old Testament was instituted or inaugurated with the blood of animals. Now you read that in Exodus 24. The New Testament starts with the shedding of Jesus' blood and, and his death, right? The, when the last drop of blood has is, is been shed, he's, he's dead now. They put the spear in the side, the blood and the water rush out. That's the beginning of the New Testament. Now, this is something that we study in our basic discipleship course. So I'm not going to go into all the verses that talk about how the death of Christ started the New Testament, but you should remember that from Hebrews chapter 9. Now we also, in discipleship, talk about the Lord's Supper. So I'm not going to go over all of that information again here. Uh, so I would refer you to lesson 9 in the discipleship book if, if you're not sure where that's at. But let me do point this out. In verse 28, at the end of the verse, Jesus mentions something. We call this a vicarious atonement. Vicarious atonement. Now the word vicarious, it means acting for another, filling the place of another, or a substitute. So when we speak about a vicarious atonement, you're offering a sacrifice for someone else. Jesus here makes it clear that the blood, his blood that is about to be shed, it is shed for many for the remission of sins. His blood is necessary for sins to be forgiven. Now, why is this such an important part of the Bible? Because there are those that, and specifically the Muslims, very much focus in on this point. They say Jesus never taught a vicarious atonement. Jesus taught that you have to be a follower of God and do the commandments and you have to work your way to the kingdom and so forth. But that's not the whole truth. Jesus did mention things of that nature, but that's not everything he taught. He does mention a vicarious atonement. This is very clear. There's no argue, There's no corruption of the Bible here. No manuscripts have you know a, a different reading on this case. This is clear. Jesus taught that his blood was being shed so that sins could be forgiven. Now, we had a verse somewhat like this, not as strong as this one, 
but it also mentions the, the aspect of Jesus uh, giving his life as a ransom for many. You might remember that back in Matthew 20, verse 28. But this is very noteworthy for that cause. Verse 29, <clears throat> Jesus says, But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine. So he is drinking new wine during the Lord's Supper, which is why we also use grape juice or new wine. He says, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So this is why during the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of Jesus's body being broken. That's why we break the bread. We use unleavened bread because that leaven is a picture of sin and Jesus had no sin in his body. We use new wine because there's no corruption in that juice. There was no corruption in Jesus's blood. And we remember his body being broken, his blood being shed, but we also remember that Jesus is coming again. Jesus gave the promise that he would drink, he would partake of this meal, if you will, again with us in the Father's kingdom. So when he comes back and, and establishes this kingdom that God intended, we, we talked about that last week as well, the kingdom that was prepared from the foundation of the world. So one day, and Zintle actually brought this up a couple weeks ago in a question in Luke 12. We've, we've looked at the verses already that Jesus will gird himself and serve us. And that all links into this promise here. All right, verse number 30. And the Bible says, And when they had sung in hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Now this, I must admit, I was fascinated today. As I was preparing for this lesson, I... Um, yeah, it's been a while since I've, since I've learned so much in, in one short preparation session. I've got to be careful not to take all of the time just talking about what I've learned on this. But um, I've always wondered, what did they sing, right? Wouldn't that be awesome if we could go back and listen to which hymn they sung? That would be amazing. Um, I, I, I cannot prove what they sang. Matthew, as far as I can remember, he's the only one that even talks about them singing. But I, I did a little research into the typical Jewish custom that goes along with a Passover meal. And to be honest, any of the special feast days for Israel, the Jews would sing um, at the end of the festival or during the festival. But with the Passover, there was a specific layout for it. Let me give you on the screen now. They called it Hallel. Halal. And yes, it is very similar to the Muslim word halal, actually. We're not going to get into those similarities, but it's halal. The word in Hebrew means praise. Okay. It's the translation of it. And it was very typical for the Jews. At the end, forgive me, let me spell this out the way it should work. You can see on the screen there, Psalm 113 and Psalm 114. At the beginning of the Passover meal, Jews will recite by singing. They, how can I say this properly? They'll recite those two chapters, but they will sing them, right? And that's, that's ceremonial for the beginning of their meal. And then at the end of the meal, they will sing slash recite Psalm 115 up to 118, now, we just don't have time, but wow, I went back and read those Psalms with this in mind that here's Jesus, the Messiah, about to go to the cross. 
He's just finished this Passover meal. He's the Passover lamb. And now he's stepping out to fulfill the Father's will and fulfill the scripture and shed his blood so that we could be forgiven. When you go back and read those chapters, I must admit, it touched my heart in a way that it never has. And those are fantastic chapters already, but man, blew me away. And then it depends on the feast day and it depends on several other factors that we won't get into now, but certain during certain times of the year, they called this the great Hallel. They would sing slash recite Psalm 136. And this would be even after that final song. Uh, sometimes they would take another drink from the cup and then sing this uh, great Hallel. But Psalm 136, you might be familiar with that psalm because the end of every verse in that chapter says the mercy of the Lord endures forever. And it talks about that. So it's a special psalm in, in that regard. I, I cannot prove that Jesus, what we're reading in verse 30, the hymn that they sung, I cannot prove that it was Psalm 115 to 118. But I can say that that's the best option right, as, as far as the best guess that we could make. And it is highly likely that that is what he's saying. One, one commentator pointed out, it says they had sung. So it was at least a song familiar to all of the men. And that fits nicely with the idea of Hallel. If it's something Jesus had just put together, it's probably not likely that they all knew it. But in any event, verse 31, it says, Then saith Jesus unto them, all ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. All right, so there's quite a bit we need to talk about in, in that verse. Uh, let me quickly mention this again. We don't have time to get into the going back and forth. But right here, you want to put in, I'm going to actually type it into the chat section so you guys have the verses at least. John chapter 13, verses 36 to 38. All right, hopefully that'll pop up in the comment section just now or the chat section. But th there's an extra conversation that goes on. Uh, and, and you'll want to, again, it, it doesn't contradict anything that we're reading. It just it fits nicely. It's another piece of the puzzle. Right, but it, it, what we're reading here in Matthew, Jesus is not, he said, all ye shall be offended because of me this night. So one has betrayed him and now all are gonna be offended. So there is a difference, right? To betray, that's malicious. You are intending to, to be a traitor, to sell the guy out. Uh, to be offended, this is not something you plan for, right? To be offended, this is to stumble. Something has surprised you, scared you, whatever you weren't expecting it. And now you've temporarily stepped, stepped away or, or fallen. So all the disciples were going to be offended. Now we know that this does happen. We'll, we'll read about it maybe later tonight, depending on how far we get. But let's pay attention for a moment to the, the verse that Jesus uses. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. All right, so let's take a look at where he's quoting. This is from Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7. All right. Uh, fascinating passage. I'm going to try to move quickly through this, but I've got to show you some context with this. Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, 
and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, we can see how this would apply to Jesus, right? I, I have no problems with that. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. That's the part that Jesus quoted. That's the part that was going to be fulfilled. And then the last part of the verse, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Hmm. Now, how does that play into the gospel narrative that we're reading about in Matthew? What, who are the little ones? I, I tried to do my homework. I couldn't find any commentator that really had an interesting note on that. So let's, let's get a little more context, see if we can figure it out. Verse 8, And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. Now you've heard me say before, if you've been with us for a while, that the Antichrist, when he rises from the dead in the tribulation time, he's going to attack Israel and wipe out two-thirds of them. This is where I get it. This is the verse that I believe indicates that. Verse 9, And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried, and they shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. Verses 8 and 9, for me, I believe that's definitely pointing to the end times, that tribulation scenario. Which makes me look at verse 7 a little, uh, little more closely. Now, please stick with me on this. I'm going to go a little deep. Verse 7, I believe, offers us one of those unique places in Scripture where we have a dual application. Obviously, the, the part that Jesus quoted applies to him. It fits his situation, the principle of it, right? Smite the shepherd, the sheep get scattered. That, that, is the, that principle was fulfilled in the story of Matthew 26. But what about this? In the tribulation time, what if the shepherd that we're reading about is the Antichrist? What if, if maybe I can be carefully and thoughtfully say it like this, if you you think of this in a dual ap application way. Yes, in one way it can be Jesus, but in another way this could be true of the Antichrist. Smite the shepherd. So the Antichrist gets killed. But then when he rises again, what does he do? He attacks the Jews. The sheep get scattered. And they do. Revelation 12, the Jews run and hide. God then at the end of verse 7, I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. God says, I'll protect, I'll protect this remnant. I think that would fit. Now, you might struggle with the first part of verse 7, though. You say, but it says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, my shepherd. So this is God speaking. Did you know that God said that Nebuchadnezzar was his servant? God said, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. Same thing with Cyrus, king of Persia. He said, he's my servant. He's my anointed one. When that person is accomplishing a God-ordained uh, punishment, God will say, this is my servant in, that, in this case. I'm going to show you a little bit more in Zechariah. 
Same book. Look what he says here. Zechariah 11, verse 15. And the Lord said unto me, Take unto thee yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd. For, lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land which shall not visit those that be cut off, neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that that is broken, nor feed that that standeth still. But he shall, fee, uh, he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Verse 17. Watch the Antichrist in it. Woe to the idle shepherd. Now, I-D-O-L. That, that's like a, you know, a statue that people worship. The idle shepherd. You know, in the tribulation, they're going to make an image for the beast that comes to life. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. I believe that this indicates some sort of, what, gunshot, bomb going off, something that hits the right side of his body. Do you see where it says the sword is going to be upon his arm? Do you see that? Now look at this again. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Wow. It looks as if there's a dual application. So if you just had Zechariah, I don't know if you would jump automatically to say, hey, this is a messianic prophecy. But that one portion of verse 7, it is true of Jesus. And the principle of that verse is being fulfilled, that the shepherd is smitten and the sheep scatter. So it, it's still true. I just think that there's, a, there's something much deeper going on with that verse. All right, so let's come back to this now. So back to the context, Jesus is saying something's going to happen to me and that's going to affect all of you. Verse 32, but after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Now that's very important. I'm just going to make quick reference to this. Now we will deal with this more in chapter 27 and chapter 20, 28 especially. After Jesus rises again, where does he meet the disciples? Well, the first time he finds them, they're in Jerusalem, right? They're hiding in the upper room for fear of the Jews. Jesus, in Mark's gospel, he walks through the door and he upbraids them. He chews them out for their unbelief. You got to remember, Jesus told them, I'm going to see you in Galilee. Now, when you read the other gospel accounts, you can see that even the angel said, don't you remember he said that he would meet you in Galilee? So they were not where they were supposed to be. He did eventually get to Galilee, and, and, and the disciples did too. They did finally get there. But uh, it looks as if the disciples missed a beat there. Verse 33, Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Now think about this in a very practical way. What did Jesus teach us in chapter 24, chapter 25? Don't be deceived. Stay ready. Live out your faith. Endure to the end. Right? That's good, good advice, good admonition for any disciple, any dispensation. Even if you're part of a good church, you can still end up bitter against the Lord and selling him out, Judas. Right? You might say the right thing and, and look right on the outside, but in, you hold the bag. You're a thief. That's Judas. Right? So even people that congregate with other Christians, not all of them are on their way to the kingdom. And even people with good intentions that have no 
no ill will towards the Lord, that have nothing but the right desire and fervency and zeal, I'll never be offended. Nothing can make me stumble. I'll walk with you the whole way. I'll go anywhere, do anything. Even men such as that, right, have to be careful. Paul gave a great verse on this. 1 Corinthians 10, I think it's verse 12. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. That's great advice for Peter here. I mean, obviously it came afterwards, but that would work. Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, verse 34, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Now we are going to talk a lot more about this story with the cock crowing and and Peter's thrice denial. We'll we'll deal more with this towards the end of the chapter because we will see how how it played out and how Peter fulfilled this. And there are some questions that come with it because in Mark's gospel, it's, we, we have more information. Jesus says, before, you, before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me thrice. But we'll, we'll deal with that. It's actually a, a much simpler explanation than a lot of people would assume. But we'll, I'm, not, I'm not just trying to skip over that, but we'll have a better chance later at the chapter to, to deal with it. So Jesus has now given a pin, like pinpointing um, a time for Peter, let's say that will remind Peter of the mistake he's making. The cock is going to crow. Before the cock crow, you'll deny me three times. So the Lord sometimes, he'll do this, right? He'll give us an alarm clock. <laughs> That's what the rooster has been known for, through what, for, for all time, for waking people up in the morning. This is Peter's wake-up call. And uh, every now and then we all need a wake-up call. Even those with the best intentions need a wake-up call. He says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. Now, we know that Peter, uh, he's kind of the, I don't want to say the spokesman. And, and forgive me, loudmouth might be a bit derogatory. I don't mean it that way. I'm trying to think of a better word for this. But he was not shy. Right? He would certainly be the one to speak up first. But you can see that all the disciples felt like this, all the ones that were left. By this point, G- Judas has left the room. Right? He's been given the sop, he ran out. But all the rest of them had the very best of intentions. So Peter speaks up and makes this great proclamation of, of devotion. The others are quick to say, yeah, me too, me too. I'm on board with that. They meant well. Verse 36 and by the way, if I'm in that group, I probably would have been right there with them saying, yeah, I'm the same way, same way. Because if you ask me right now, you have any intentions of denying the Lord? Obviously not. It's the last thing I want to do, right? But that being said, I need to take Paul's advice and stay sober, vigilant, because the adversary of the devil walks about seeking whom he may devour. So verse 36, then cometh Jesus <clears throat> sorry, with them unto a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane. The word means an oil press. Now we're not going to get into the preaching of this passage, but God knows there's some great preaching here. The oil press, if you think of the oil as a picture of the Holy Spirit and the press, that's a picture of life's pressure. And you need that pressure, that squeeze to get the oil to come out. 
And if you want the Holy Spirit not just to be filled with him, but to overflow and and to have the, can I say, the ointment, the, the smell of that ointment fill the room. You need that pressure. Can I just slip this in quickly on a practical note? It is not beyond God to introduce pressure into your life. That happens. That happens. God he does create circumstances wherein we feel pressure. That's biblical. Uh, I think Abraham and Isaac, that story, Genesis 22, God tempted him. That, I think that's an example of it. David said that God presses me sore. Right? So he acknowledged that God would do this. What God will not do is create anxiety or stress. So I heard one preacher say it like this, and I think this is a brilliant statement. God might introduce pressure but anxiety and stress comes about when we do not handle the pressure in a biblical or a godly manner. And the more I think about that statement, the more I see the truth of it. I believe that's right. Jesus has gone to Gethsemane. Now we know from John's gospel that Jesus often went to this place and he took his disciples with him on many other occasions to pray. Uh, he says, he saith unto the disciples, sit ye here while I go yonder, while I go and pray yonder. Sorry, verse 37. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that'll be James and John, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Now watch that word. Tarry ye here and watch with me. Now, guys, I can't help it. I mentioned earlier when I learned, I've learned a lot through this, uh, through the preparation for this. This whole Hallel thing that Jesus most likely sang, I, I was just gobsmacked when I saw this today. So it, it may not hit you as hard as it hit me, but I've never seen it like this before. Let me pull it up for you. Now, I just rem I want to remind you, he's sorrowful and very heavy. He, in verse 38, his soul, his soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. His soul is feeling this. So to put this in another way, the pressure that he's feeling, the average man under, if we just take any, any fricky off the street and put him into this situation, the pressure would be so great, it'd kill him the emotional, spiritual, physical stress of this stuff, it would be too much. So this is, it's just gripped a hold of Jesus now. And, and he knows, I've got, to, I've got to pray about this. But what if he had just finished singing this? Watch this. Psalm 116. This is part of the, the Hallel. This is the end of the meal. I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications. Because he hath inclined his ear unto me, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. Watch verse 3. Oh, watch this. The sorrows of death come past me, and the pains of hell get hold upon me. That's your soul feeling it. Your body would feel the sorrows of death, and your soul would feel the pains of hell. Verse three at the end, I found trouble and sorrow. So what does Jesus do? He go, he's in the garden of Gethsemane, 
Pray with me, guys. I'm going to go yonder and pray. I'm going to go a little further and talk to the Father. Verse 4, Then called I upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Oh, for time's sake, we just can't get into it, but read Hebrews 5, 7 with this. Wonderful. Wonderful. Just skip down a little bit. Verse 7, Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. He has a promise of a resurrection. I I had never put Psalm 116 along with the Garden of Gethsemane. I just found that extremely impressive to think that the Lord might have just and probably did just recite this and sing this. And you know, there's something about singing that is powerful. It, it, it really does. It's, it's more moving than just reciting it, you know, saying it. To think that he just went through that chapter and now he's putting it into practice. Tarry ye here and watch with me, Matthew 26, 39. And he went a little further. There's a lot of good preaching in that, by the way. Just that phrase, go, go a little further. When the pressure's on, you got to keep going. You just go a little further. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Guys, we could spend an entire lesson just on that verse. You have heard me mention this in multiple sermons. I use this verse in premarriage counseling. I use this verse in counseling in other areas of life. There is so much in this verse. Notice that Jesus is allowed to approach the Father and ask for another option. God, please, Father, please, if, if there's another way we can do it, let's do it that way. It's okay to ask. Deep down, I think Jesus knew, knew what the answer was. But this is a legitimate request. If it's possible, if there's any other way to save mankind, let's do it that way. Because what he's facing is not just a horrible and painful death, but the sorrows and pains of hell have gripped his soul. Father, please, any other way? But I just want you to know, Father, this is my request. That's, this is the way I would like to do it if, if I can't, but I'll let you choose. This is the perfect attitude for life. When Paul says, oh, please listen to this. When Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That mind that was in Christ that is supposed to be in us, this is it. This is the mindset. It is okay for you to think and feel and to express your heart to God and say, God, I would like this, and if we could do it this way, but the final decision is yours, God. I'd rather do it your way than my way. That's the perfect attitude. This, by the way, this is what submission looks like. So if a wife 
You say, I want to learn how to be a good wife. Where can I study that in the Bible? Study the life of Jesus. He is the perfect example of submitting to the authority. He is. He's in submission to his head, right? The head of the head of the woman is the man. The head of the man is Christ. The head of Christ is God. It's, it's his father. Perfect picture of submission. So we, I could take a long time on this verse. There's so much that comes from it. I believe what I've said will at least get you started, hopefully meditating on it yourself. Verse 40. He cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Now that tells me that what we have in verse 39, that takes, what, all of three seconds to say? But Jesus had evidently been out in the garden for an hour praying about that, that question or that request. Now, it wouldn't surprise me if Jesus did say more to the Father in that hour. That, that's perfectly legitimate if he did. There's nothing in the text that would prohibit that. But it's also very possible that Jesus put that statement out there and then just stayed quiet for a while and waited for the Father to speak to him. But he comes back to Peter, who has just moments ago said, I'll, if you read it in John's gospel as well, I'll go to prison, I'll even die for you. I'll never be offended. Oh, okay, but, but can you pray? I mean, I've asked, you have volunteered to die, but are you willing to, to pray with me? Now, I'm not going to get caught up in the fact that there's that he mentions one hour. I think Jesus said, can you not watch with me one hour in reference to how long he had just prayed. This is not a biblical command that you have to pray for an hour a day or anything like that. So please don't take it like that. However, nothing wrong with praying for an hour. Nothing wrong with praying for more than that. Not every day. You may not be able to do that every day. Or maybe you can that's something you need to work out with the Lord yourself. But notice how Jesus uses the word watch. Even in verse 41, we'll see it again. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. So not just pray. That's getting in there and just talking, telling the Lord what you think, what you want, and so forth. Watch, that, that goes much deeper. You have to pay attention to what's going on around you. Not right there in that specific moment only, but what has been going on the last few days? What are the circumstances in my life? What has God been showing me and, and, and speaking to me from other places? I, I need to pay attention to what's happening in a very general sense. And while I'm praying, I'll put something out there. Watch how God reacts. Watch for a peace to come over your heart or the absence of peace. All of that plays into it. Watch and pray that, now notice this next statement, that ye enter not into temptation. Jesus did not say, watch and pray so that I can get out of the trouble I'm in. That's not the point of this. Watch and pray. Why? Because you guys need this time in prayer. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he acknowledges that Peter has good intentions. He also acknowledges that the flesh is a problem. And this is precisely Paul. He said it very well in Romans 7. The good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that I do. Why? There's no more I, but sin that dwelleth in me. That's the problem. 
this the, the the reason the flesh is such a problem because it has the sinful nature in it verse 42 he went away again the second time and prayed saying oh my father if this cup may not pass away from me except i drink it thy will be done so jesus has gone off by himself again to pray now in mark's gospel it says he went away and prayed the same words let me see if i can get that for you uh, Mark 14 and verse 39. <clears throat> he went away, uh, and again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. Now, I'll tell you why I'm pointing that out. When we come to Matthew, those aren't the exact same words, but this tells me something about the Bible. We need to allow the Bible to define for us what a precise match is. And when it says same words, what do you mean? Do you mean that every letter and every syllable of every word is exactly the same? Or do you mean that the words that he used is communicating the same message? So the standards of precise repeating of a story by first century standards compared to 21st century standards, I think those standards are going to be quite different. People sometimes, when they look at the Bible, they expect every quotation from Jesus, it, it, it has to have the accuracy of modern-day reporting. Like you're standing there with a tape recorder, you have the exact words, and you can repeat it verbatim. You can't expect that of first-century reporting. We still want to have accuracy in the story, and we do. This, is what, this, is, this meets God's standard for accuracy to say he spake the same words. He did. These words tell the same story as the first prayer session, if you want to call it that. Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Now, if you want to notice any difference in this, what you could acknowledge is that Jesus, you can see he's kind of leaning towards, I'm going to have to take this cup. But you can still see in it there, there's still a bit of a request. Are you sure there's no way around it? Verse 43, and he came and um, sorry, and he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. There's a great practical lesson to that, right? It gets more into preaching the passage, but how many times does Jesus tell us, be careful, take heed lest you fall, and then we fall, we get spiritually drowsy and the eyes get heavy and on we go. Verse 44, and he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. So again, he's just praying about the same thing. He, the, the, the meaning of the words, they don't change at all. Verse 45, then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, sleep on now and take your rest. So rather than wake them up and try to give them another chance to pray, he knows that time is gone. You guys, it, it's, it's obvious you're not going to take advantage of this time, so just take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So he knows there's no time to put forth any legitimate prayer. My hour is here. My time is not. That's it. I'm, I'm going to be taken. So whatever chance you have to rest, take it now. Because this is, you're not going to have any more time for rest. You're about to have to run. And then sure enough, who knows, just maybe a matter of seconds passed by. Verse 46, 
Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. So Judas had just stepped into the garden, as we're going to see in the next part of the passage, uh, with the great multitude of soldiers and others to take him. So I think that's as far as we need to get for tonight. Uh, I think we'll be able to finish the chapter uh, tomorrow. So please remember that we do have class tomorrow. I know that some of you are at, maybe have plans to be out of town or travel. So if you are going to be traveling or, or out of town, please let us know so that we don't expect the attendance code um, at a certain time. We are very willing to accommodate and we understand that you do have plans and, and we get that. We're not trying to be difficult with the attendance code. We're just, we need something for to, to offer structure. Um, also, I, I just want to offer a quick reminder. Many of you have already sent in your exam that was due uh, today. You, please feel free if you want to send it in before the end of the day. I'll, I'll still count it as uh, on time as long as it's in tonight. Um, but if you haven't, uh, just be aware that we do take off a few points for every day that it's late. Tomorrow night, I should be giving you the notes for your Philippians exam, and then you'll have a week from tomorrow to get that written. And also, um, as it pertains to your assignment, your assignment will be due the last week of school. So when we finish Matthew, I will give you a Matthew exam. Then you'll have one week after it to prepare and write the exam. And that, when that exam is turned in, your assignment, your final assignment for the year will also need to be turned in. So just be aware of those things. All right, a uh, question here. Brother Mike. Yeah, you know what? Forgive me. Zintle, I think, I think you slipped in this question last class, but Christina, my wife, actually pointed it out to me after I had shut the live stream off on my computer, so I'm sorry if I didn't see that on time. Brother Mike, is there a connection of the 30 pieces of Judas with Zechariah 11 and verse 12? Uh, this is something I'd mentioned in the previous class that we are going to talk more about the 30 pieces of silver when we get to chapter 27. So I'm, I'm looking just now at my Bible. Chapter 27 and verse 6. When we get to that, um, we will take a longer look. And I think it's Zechariah 11 and verse 13. Yeah, that's it. Matthew 27, 9. We'll take a look at that prophecy in more detail. But yes, there is a connection with that. So you're, you're thinking correctly there. All right. If, uh, if you do have a, a question, anything about tonight's lesson or anything else, please feel free to slip it in. Uh, I'm going to pray and then I'll check the comments one more time. Hopefully it will be there by the time we're done. But if not, Lord willing, you'll see me tomorrow. All right, Father, thank you this evening for the opportunity to have this class. And Lord, I appreciate all the stuff that I learned today. And uh, man, there's just so much information and even some great practical stuff. Lord, help us to be mindful of our human infirmity. That despite our best intentions, Lord, this flesh is just weak. Help all of us to be careful about watching and praying. Uh, Lord, we understand that pressure, oh, the pressures of life can get real. They can get difficult. And thank you for giving us a Gethsemane where we can run to you and fall on our face and pray and find comfort and grace to help in time of need. I pray that you please give us a good night's rest and tomorrow, Lord, bring us back refreshed and hungry and ready to learn more. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I don't see any other questions, so I'll close it down for now. Lord willing, you'll see me tomorrow.